Welcome to Failing Forward. We're talking to Alfred Macavore, who was instrumental in CARE's Ebola response in Sierra Leone in 2014 and 2015, and is now helping us figure out how do we do a better job for COVID now. Welcome to Failing Forward, Alfred. We're delighted to have you today. Can you introduce yourself for our audience? My name is Alfred Macavore. I'm currently the sector manager for sexual reproductive health here in Nigeria, but I'm presently working from home Sierra Leone. Can you tell us a little bit about your role when we were doing Ebola response in 2014 and 2015? At that time, I was actually with Kia Sierra Leone, serving the capacity as deputy team leader, coordinating the response, I mean, from the Kia Sierra Leone standpoint. My major role was to actually liaise and coordinate activities with other actors that were actually involved in the response. And why is it important for us to talk about challenges in our programming? The challenges definitely will not only help prepare us for the future. Addressing them means you're actually addressing issues of concern or issues that will negatively impact the people whom we serve. So that is why it is but very important to consider our challenges in our program, because that is one way we can improve, learning from those challenges. And times they are when it is even possible to turn those challenges into opportunities. You were really involved in the Ebola response in Sierra Leone and in West Africa. Talk to us a little bit about what that context looked like while it was happening. Generally, the context was very much uncertain. People were living in a constant state of fear. There was loss of mistrust, even in public institutions, including government and even non-governmental organizations that were involved in the response. Social and cultural values and ties were actually disrupted. But then over and above it all, the health system was completely overwhelmed. In fact, it got to a point when it nearly collapsed because they could not actually be able to carry the burden of the disease that we had at that point in time. So generally, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of mistrust, and social and cultural values were actually destroyed. Everyone was apprehensive about one another. In terms of living as a family, living as a community, that no longer existed because everyone was suspicious of one another. Talk a little bit about what happened with mobility during the Ebola crisis, how people were able to travel, and what quarantine looked like. Travel was largely disrupted during the Ebola crisis because there were a lot of restrictions put in place by the government. Even at the local level, there are a lot of bylaws that were put in place by local leaders. So oftentimes, communities found it very difficult to actually accept people coming from other areas. Then there are also a lot of roadblocks where screening was done. So that had to discourage travel a lot. And people actually only traveled when they deemed it absolutely necessary. That restricted mobility, how did that change CARE's ability to deliver programming? It interfered with the timeliness of response because this was a very acute emergency and uh, this sense of the word, everything needed to be done timely. We spent a lot of time negotiating with security personnel, negotiating with community stakeholders so that they could actually allow us to carry out our work swiftly and effectively. Tell us some of your key lessons learned from that experience, and especially some of the things that you would do differently now. One of the key lessons learned was that initially when the whole thing about the Ebola started, we thought it was just a head problem, more or less a clinical problem. So we didn't bring the communities on board, but it did not carry them along. And because of that, along the way, we are faced with too many challenges. After that, we decided to integrate community engagement and dialogue with the communities, which actually helped a long way 
One of the key lessons learned was that the Ebola itself was not only a health issue, it was more of a social issue than a health issue. It came out clearly that the clinical response alone was not all to it, but then social mobilization was more useful and rewarding than the clinical response. What were some other things that went wrong with the programming as we were trying to respond? One other challenge we had was to actually decide on what we can do and the approach we have to use to do it. The way the Ebola was presented, everybody was so much scared. It was so scary that we thought we could only work remotely. But then later on, realized that, okay, before this time, we have been implementing programs in the communities. We already had community-based structures that we've been working with. Why can't we decide to work through these existing community structures including some of the local partners that we have. Once we decided to adopt that approach to working, we were able to actually overcome most of the challenges that we face in terms of reach, in terms of engaging with the communities, in terms of positively influencing the attitude and behavior of people. Talk a little more about that community engagement piece. That's a central part of the work we're doing in COVID right now, but we have to be careful to do that in a way that does no harm to communities. How did you manage that? First and foremost, we started by orientating the community structures that we are going to work with on the Ebola itself, communicating the risks, preventative measures. And thereafter, we now also decided to support them with personal protective equipment because definitely there are some that we are going to be doing some activities that require them to be interacting very closely with some of the community members. And we are never sure what the status of those community members. So we instill into them precautionary measures that they should take. At the same time, we made sure that the makeages we are actually adapted to suit the realities and the local context. One other thing that we did during the community engagement was information management. Because I always say that during epidemics, we always have this thing that we call infodemic. A lot of information coming from a lot of places. So we actually decided to work with them on how to manage the information and make sure that whatever messages they have to pass on were actually approved messages. The messages and all other things that we are doing at that time were regulated by the government. So we did not want to find ourselves in a situation where we would do anything contrary to the stipulated standards by the government. What were some of the things you did as a team to overcome the infodemic? It is all centered around dialogue with the communities, trying to understand what are the prevailing rumors. We also built into our community engagement a community-based surveillance system. So one of the things we did in order not to lose touch with the communities was that we provided mobile phones to them so that they could timely call us and share information with us. Were there any other creative solutions that you would recommend to people who are trying to deal with the COVID response now? In as much as here we're actually responding to the crisis, the government was actually leading the response. So if care alone was adequately equipped and then the government was not adequately equipped, then there was no way we were going to get there. So we also had to sit together with the government, identify some of the challenges and the gaps, and we decided to figure out how we could provide support to them so that they could be actually responsive. We also have this issue of humanitarian accountability, and we thought that was very much critical. So that was something that we also decided to share to the government so that they may not only end up being responsive, but they can also be accountable in the process. Let's not forget that there was lots of mistrust already among the affected population. So without accountability, that was going to undermine everything that we are doing. Working that way, we are able to overcome the challenges and we are able to actually gain acceptance and try to work around the issue of mistrust from communities. What else are you seeing changing in the current COVID response? Because you're also involved in implementing that. 
How are you seeing us carry those lessons forward? In the case of Kia Nigeria, we've just started. We are trying to adapt the existing initiatives that we have so that we can integrate elements of COVID-19 response into them. But I have a feeling that if we are to actually import some of these learnings from the Ebola response, because the situations look very much similar, then definitely we are sure of getting there. Understanding that we've only just started, are there any things that you're starting to see us use that we learned last time and we are applying now? Yes, to complement what we've been doing on the ground. We've actually identified risk communication and social mobilization. Before this time, we've been actually working with community volunteers. We have a lot of structures with whom we have been working at the community level. So we can use them as also useful complements are very experienced in responding to epidemics. Unfortunately, you've had to do that before. What is one or two action points you would recommend to places where they are trying to respond to a situation like this for the first time? Timely decision making. You need to be very clear on what you want to do. We faced that during the Ebola response. We just wanted to follow the crap because when it all started, there was this push from the government that, oh, we needed medicines, we needed other supplies. Later on, we said, no, we need to actually stay within what we are good at doing. So we decided to make a conscious and deliberate decision that social mobilization, community engagement is our niche. For any other offices, be very clear and make a timely decision on what is to be done, because that will help a long way in saving lives. And what is one thing you recommend that people don't do in this situation? People always think because they want to move very fast, so they may tend to ignore the aspects of coordination. But coordination is very much key because no single partner will have all of the solutions. We need to also set time aside for coordination. What were some of the challenges you saw with coordination during the Ebola response? One of the main challenges was varying approaches among partners. There are instances where you have partners working in the same communities, but then in terms of standardizing the package and all the rest of it, that was always a challenge. So because of that, there's always this tendency for the activities of one partner to actually either interfere or undermine the activities of the other. Did you find any mechanisms that made coordination easier and more efficient? Yes. Oftentimes during such crises, people think coordination should only happen at the central level. But what we realized was that besides the central level coordination, on the ground coordination, like in the communities, was very much key. Because that is where the action is actually happening. We are sitting in coordination meetings at the national level and at the district level. But then later we realized that there was always a disconnect from the realities on the ground. So what we did was to actually mobilize ourselves, establish mechanisms at the local levels. That was very much what it yielded very great dividend. In a context where we have to be very careful about how many meetings we have and how many trips we take to communities and what kinds of contact we have with people, how do you do some of that coordination at a distance or with remote ways? That is the beauty of technology. Currently, we can have tele-coordination. We may not necessarily be always physically present together to actually have this coordination. But it is always important to actually share information. I mean, share our successes, our challenges, lessons learned, and they agree on the way forward. Are there different tools or technologies that you would recommend for doing this at the local level? We have Zoom. Are there other tools that are more appropriate for more local level coordination? You can connect to all of them on whatever mobile phones they have at that level so that you can actually share information because of the crisis, you're currently in Sierra Leone and yes. your team is based in Nigeria. How are you communicating with that team right now? Uh, I'm using like several methods. I, I, 
I use WhatsApp to reach out to them. Sometimes I'm using Skype calls, Zoom calls, and there are times I can give them a direct call on the phone. We were talking before, and one of the things you said that really struck me is traditional behavior change communication is not going to do it. We need to think beyond that. Tell me a little bit about what you mean there. Oftentimes, we don't really try to sit with the communities, try to understand the issues, the behavior patterns. We may only like see to ourselves designed like information, education, communication materials. And all we do is to actually like give out information. We are not even bothered whether they are actually responding positively or negatively to the information we are giving out because we don't solicit feedback. Instead of just sitting to ourselves and coming up with conventional messages, we need to actually engage with the communities try to understand what the real issues are and now target messages so that they can appropriately and sustainably address those issues that we've identified. Last question before we finish. Do you have any final recommendations or words of advice for people who are listening and trying to respond to COVID right now? The final recommendation, especially when dealing with a pandemic of this nature, is that we must always ensure that we do the first thing first and do it correctly. Secondly, when it comes to decision-making, I know for sure that we have systems and procedures in place, but we need to a bit relax some of the decision-making, if possible, actually like delegate decision-making authorities to other levels of staff that are on the ground. Because currently we are working remotely. It is not for every bit of decision that they have to actually come to us. So because of that, we've already done some delegation of our authority to people who are actually on the ground, interacting and interfacing directly with the communities. That has come up a lot, that delegating decision-making in all of the after-action reviews I've read in a lot of conversations. How do you make that possible? How do you make sure that decision-making does get delegated and that people understand the guidelines they need to make effective decisions? One way is when you want to delegate to someone, you need to actually let that person be very much clear on his roles or responsibilities. So one way is to actually like communicate it very clearly to the person to whom you are going to delegate. Aside from that, you need to be always available for technical backstopping. That is why we are always on standby. Build confidence in that individual. When it comes to decision-making, you need to actually make informed decisions. So the person needs to understand the actual issues so that he can always make informed decisions. And that would definitely boost his confidence. One of the things you mentioned is do first things first. What do you think the first things are right now? Charity begins at home. And as much as we're interested in actually saving lives of the communities, the first thing is how we can also protect and save the lives of the staff. Because without the staff, nothing will happen. Any final words of wisdom you want to share? At such moments, there's a lot of panic. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of people will be worried. But what I can always say is that we know this situation is very serious. It is taking away lives. But then from experience in a pandemic of this nature, we need to push aside the panic. What is important is to actually stay calm, build a confidence. It is only by so doing that you'll be able to make the right decisions. Otherwise, if you allow the panic and the fears to overcome you, then that would definitely interfere with him in the way you do things, the decisions you want to make. Thank you so much for participating today, Alfred. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Emily. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next time on Failing Forward.